House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Welcome back into the House of Mystery, and we are now on Daylight Savings Time. Disgusting. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm still in a fog. It's torture. It certainly is, Al. It's your fault. It is. It's always my fault. Yeah, why, do you, why did you make us change the time? <laughs> I have to blame you. I have to blame someone. I just like to cause trouble. I know. I know. I'm going to have to speak to your <laughs> wife. Get her, you know, tone you down some. My, I know. Somebody's got to. It's too much work, you know. <laughs> Keep you locked in the basement. Isn't it? That's Get right. Cat. Um, <laughs> That's where I belong. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't say it. <laughs> now you're learning. You're learning. That's right. I know. I know my place. You know your place. Well, and I saw your new movie review up. It looks good. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I guess a lot of people are commenting. I, uh, it was it was kind of a take it or leave it movie. That was uh, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, did you see Eric, our other co-host? He put up his uh, rating he got on a movie he made. Oh, did he? I missed that. <laughs> he put up two ratings. He got a five-star from someone saying how good it was and all this stuff. And then he got a one-star from someone saying that left is BS. <laughs> oh, I got to love it. You got to love people, you know, anyway. Um, it's all part of the fun. Yeah, it certainly is, you know. Um, well, now, today we've got another one uh, bites the dust. We've got a uh, fantasy author. And uh, he comes from uh, from Canada in the big, big white north back east. Um, so let's uh, talk to him, uh, Mr. Richard H. Stevens. Thank you for being here. Hi, Alan. Hi, David. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. Um, so this is interesting. You've written quite a few fantasy books over the years here, looks like. Um, what got you into this writing world? Like, where did it start for you? I started writing when I was about nine years old. In Canada, we have two-month summer vacation from school, and uh, probably one hot August morning, I was sitting around bored stiff, and I had a Hardy Boys book sitting next to me, and I'm thinking, hmm, I could probably write a story like that. So uh, I did, and I changed out uh, Frank and Joe Hardy and made them myself and my best friend, and uh, we solved some mysteries. And then in 1977, I saw Star Wars at the theaters, and I was smitten by science fiction. So I wrote a 600 page uh, science fiction book with, uh, again, myself and my friends going around the state of the galaxy. And then in about 1980, 81, uh, a, a local bookstore proprietor introduced me to the book, uh, The Sword of Shannara by Terry Brooks. And I was uh, hooked on fantasy at that point, And my writing changed to fantasy as well. And then late 1982, uh, the song Run to the Hills by Iron Maiden came on the radio one night. Uh, <laughs> and for some reason, it just sparked this fantasy story in my head, the Soul Forge uh, saga. And it was uh, supposed to be a three-book series. And 36 years later, uh, Soul Forge book one in the Soul Forge universe was released in uh, 2018. So uh, Running to the Hills, kind of a, a um, classic song in, in the metal world back then. I, I So are you kind of doing... Um, fantasies that are people are in trouble yeah well the the protagonist in uh, soul forge he's actually a washed up hero so he doesn't start young he starts uh, you're introduced to him he's 45 years old and he's an alcoholic 
and he wants nothing to do with the world. Uh, while he was out saving the kingdom from the evil sorcerer many, many years before, uh, no one stuck around to save his family. So when he came back, he found his family was dead, and uh, he uh, became a, a recluse, and he was a real sad, sad character uh, when we come upon him at the beginning of Soul Forge. But uh, for those 35 years that that book languished in my head, I, you know, I had two careers and five children, and they always take precedence over what I want to do as an author. But uh, I always knew the ending to this trilogy. And halfway through book three, when I was writing in 2019, uh, Into the Madness, uh, one of the main characters who was supposed to be integral to the end of the story did something so bizarre that the ending was gone, and I had to come up with a new ending. And a dragon came into the story. So at that point, I thought, oh, that's great. So for a 1,000 pages, there's no mention of a creature that's the size of a house and now we have one in the book, and I'm going to have to explain this to my readers who read book one and two, why there was no mention of a dragon up to this point. So I went back in time, and I wrote the, the Rika's Flight series, Legends of the Lurker, and it explains where the dragons went. And while I was writing that, the book that we want to talk about today is Keeper of the Jewel. I had mentioned the 700-year-old elf queen, and as I was writing that story, I'm thinking, oh, I'd love to write the story of the 700-year-old elf queen. So I did not George R. R. Martin my series. I finished it, and uh, then I went back in time several hundred years before that and started writing The Rise of the Elf Queen, and that's where the, uh, the Keeper of the Jewel comes into play. Um, 700-year-old elf queen. You could have just wrote my story. <laughs> <laughs> but she's not 700. And she's actually a 17-year-old uh, spoiled princess who is enjoying the posh castle life. And when her mother uh, discovers a plot to uh, assassinate the princess, uh, the mother, the queen uh, exiles the princess to a rock that's protected by dragons. And uh, she figures it's the best thing for her daughter. And, of course, the princess is not too happy about that. No, I wouldn't be either. I'm spoiled. I, I have oh, spoiled, everything yeah. I want. Yeah. Why would I want to go to a for rock? Sure. <laughs> you two can relate for sure, yeah. Yeah, big girl. Hey, listen, so I wonder, when you write these, these characters, so you've got the dark alcoholic, you've got the spoiled princess, you've got all these different characters like that, um, how do you put yourself into their place and write their feelings and their experiences and that without you being that or do you dress up like a princess and kind of go do that thing or like where do, where does this um come from is this just your imagination and yeah yeah it wouldn't be pretty if i dressed up as a princess i'll tell you that right now but uh, <laughs> yeah no i uh generally when i first started soul forge i uh opened the door i i'm not a, a planner i'm not a plotter so i don't think out things ahead of time I opened up the front door, I kicked uh, the alcoholic out the door, and uh, we discovered the world through his eyes. So it was, you know, I was kind of along as a, a viewer or a reader as well. So I didn't know what was going to go on. I always knew where the story was going to end. I just, and then it didn't end there anyway, but I always knew where it was going to end for 35 years. And uh, I just had to discover the world through his eyes. So as we walked through the forest, I described them, and the reader and myself got uh, familiar with the, the land of Zephyr. So, but with regards to their feelings and stuff like that, it's just, I don't know, uh, you know, I've been around for 50 years, odd years now, so I've experienced all these different things. I used to work in a police service, so, you know, I've seen a lot of things as well, and, you know, I can kind of relate to, to a lot of these scenarios. Uh, you know, I've never been a spoiled princess before, but uh, <laughs> I, I, I know I've, I've seen spoiled, uh, spoiled children, and, you know, I just try to visualize how they would react and how they would speak. So even though it's a fantasy world, I try to put the real life elements in it just to make my characters more relatable to everyday life. 
Well, with with your characters uh, that, that are more like myth- mythological, like elves and dragons and such, um, do you do you use the uh, standard uh, characterizations of those characters, or are you going for uh, something that is uh, more unique to uh, your worldview uh, for 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 your fantasy worlds? I would say I kind of. Uh stay down the center there, you know, an elf is an elf is an elf. Uh, if it quacks like a duck, it's a duck. So my elves are a little, uh, you know, a little snooty. They're a little higher than everyone else. And, you know, they live so long, so they their intelligence is much higher than man, who you know, lives maybe 50, 60, 70 years, depending on uh, what they do in the world. But uh, so elves gain this a uh, little bit of hierarchy where they're uh, a little bit more knowledgeable and they, they consider themselves a little bit uh, more worthy than man. So there is a bit of a rivalry there, and uh, so you know the mankind's always uh, looking at the pointy ears people, and there's a bit of prejudice going on in there. As far as dragons, uh, I, I don't know if there is a a, a typical dragon. Like if we, if we think of uh, when uh, who's uh, the James Bond guy? Jeez, I can't remember the white beard and all that uh, with the great voice. He did the the dragon Dragonheart. Oh yeah, yeah. I can't think of his name, but uh, James Bond at one point. Sean Connery. When Sean Connery. Oh, like, Sean Connery. Uh, yes, yes. It's, it's great getting old because you forget all these things. But uh, yeah, so when Sean Connery did that, you know, he plays a very intelligent dragon who's, uh, you know, kind of looks down upon mankind as well. And I, I think dragons are always portrayed that way if uh, they're given some kind of sentience. So I'd say my characters basically stick to the norms. Your your characters. When you say I at that, I always talk to fiction writers like yourself and fantasy writers um your characters how do you feel about them and what kind of relationship do you have them and with them and i ask that because i hear so many um fiction writers saying stuff like their family or their children or their you know some some sort of description of of a close member to them and that so how is it for you it's interesting you say that you know i I don't consciously view them that way there's just something i write down on this paper but you do grow an infinity to them that's for sure uh I have a few characters that uh, their time in the story had come, and I, I fought very hard uh, whether they should actually die or not. And because you know I'd, I'd grown so used to them being in my story, they were just like a close friend you have beside you, your you know your pet dog or cat is always with you, and all of a sudden it's time for them to go. So it's very hard sometimes to get rid of them, you know, even if you you do it as an author to give some impact to the story, some emotion to the story. Uh, I find that when I go back and edit these scenes, uh, you know, it, it really emotionally bothers me as well to, to see them go. And uh, my narrator, uh, he was reading into the oh, Wizard of the North. No, sorry, he was reading into the Madness. And this is where that one character does something so bizarre. And uh, the scene brought him to tears. And he's a narrator from the U.S. who, uh, you know, really has nothing invested in the story other than he wants his voice to sound well, so maybe we'll sell a few books. But uh so it was neat the emotional impact that he had. So, yeah, as an author, I find it hard to get rid of some characters. I find it easy to get rid of others. Like some are built to get rid of, but uh, uh, some of the characters you get really close to. Well, you said uh, you, you've had characters surprise you. Um, I'm wondering how you experience your characters. Do you have an inner monologue in your head? Uh, is that how you write dialogue? Uh, I guess I'm trying to find out if you're hearing voices, too. So. <laughs> I know that, that it just happens. Like, like I say, as a, as a pantser who, uh, who is a writer who flies by seat of his pants for the most part, uh, 
I, I don't have things planned out. And so when the scene starts and they start talking, a lot of times I don't know what they're going to be talking about until we have the conversation. And they do surprise me. And you know, I don't know what I'm going to write. I don't sit down thinking, okay, he's going to say this. But that being said, as I get more involved, I've got 13 books now. They're all in the same universe. So I start making points and uh, different uh, pieces of paper and stuff like that. So I know where some stories will go in the future just because of the things that I've divulged uh, out of some of the characters I'm writing now. But generally for the conversations themselves, I don't know how the conversation is going to go. And, and you said you worked for the police service for a while. So I would imagine there was a lot of structure in your job. So it's it's kind of it's kind of uh, funny that you don't like to do outlines or you're not really an outliner or a planner uh, too much. It's it's natural to go the other way. Um, so how do you know how many books you're going to do in a series and stuff like? Or I guess you don't, right? It's just totally as it comes. Yeah, I generally I don't know why, but uh, I generally write in trilogies. Uh, this last series with uh, Keeper of the Jewel, Keeper of the Jewel is never supposed to be written. Uh, I include interior pictures of my books and. Uh, so I find, try to find them cheap uh, from designers, and I saw a cover designer who had the Keeper of the Jewel cover on there, and I inboxed her and said, hey, I'd like to use that for an interior picture. And she said, absolutely not. And I said, okay. <laughs> she said, that it's, too, it's too good to be an interior picture. I'm selling it as a cover. So, it, And I thought that was kind of neat because she's making money, the same kind of money, regardless what I do with that picture. But uh, she stuck to her guns, and I, I thought about it for you know about a week, and all of a sudden I had a 600-page book jump into my head, and I, figured, I was just going to start the High Cliff Guardians a little bit earlier and start uh, start the story with the princess being 17 instead of where I was going to start her at the time. And, yeah, that's how the, they, that went. Uh, how much of you are you putting into the book, into these characters? I, I mean, how much of your own, let's say, personality or feelings or, or thoughts in that way go into the, these characters? I think probably a lot. I, I don't think I consciously do it, but I think as an author, you don't have a choice. Like You're writing from your own experience. You can't write from uh, Alan's experience or David's experience. I can't anyway because I have an experience that you guys have. So I, I think as authors, uh, whether we consciously or subconsciously do it, our characters and our stories even are basically an extension of ourselves. So, uh, you know, there are a lot of things that you go through in life that uh, that will weigh on you. And whether you constantly think about them at the time uh, or not, they will seep into your story. So... I guess my character relations and things that they go through, kind of, even though it's, again, even though it's a fantasy world, I try to relate them back to today's world then, you know, so the reader can uh, sympathize, empathize, get angry with, or, or you know, not to like my point of view, but it's my point of view, so that's how the story's going to be written. So there will be some readers that maybe the themes in my books uh, don't agree with them, but, you know, I can't please everybody, so... No, no, and you use them and kill them in your next <laughs> <Yeah>. book. <laughs> you know, that, that's the great part about being a writer, that's correct. Yeah, you can take anybody yeah. you don't like. So I wonder then, um, do, do you think there's a subtext that comes out of your book? Is there some sort of a um, a meaning and and more than just the story itself? And it might not even be planned. It might be something that just comes out. Um, are you trying to get something across to the reader? For sure. Uh, every time I write a book, I'm always trying to come across some of the moral dilemmas that uh, our world faces. Uh, one of my books, it's just a short little novella. It's actually the very first thing I ever uh, published, and I did not have a professional editor for this one. It's just a little short story about uh, 
the characters when they're younger. I was just trying to cut my teeth, uh, learning Amazon and all that stuff, trying to figure out how to actually self-publish myself. And uh, so I wrote this little story called The Royal Tournament, and it's about this young man who is always helping his father out. He can't escape the farm life. He wants to go uh, fight with the king, but, you know, he's, he's tied to his family. He can't let his father down. And he comes across uh, a person of color. And in my world, in Zephyr, there aren't a lot of people of color there. And But this person of color comes in there, and, of course, he gets uh, uh, discriminated against, uh, like we've seen through our the way our earth is, unfortunately. And uh, so it turned it, and I never meant to write the book along those lines. That just happened while the story was developing. And all of a sudden, I had this really emotional uh, bond between these two totally different people who come together. They don't know each other, but they're both naive and they're both innocent. And they don't see each other for being black and white. They see each other as people. And uh, so I'm, I like that too. I'm, I'm, you know, growing up, my best friends were all from all over the world, and I never saw them as anything else other than people. So I, I guess I'm not a good person to champion the cause of anything like that, but uh, I'm just telling the story from my point of view. And uh, I think if I tried to get on a soapbox and start preaching, I, you know, I would probably get it all wrong. So I try not to do that, uh, I, I, but it does uh, come through in my stories for sure. I just, you know, the world would be a better place if we just accepted everybody as a person and not... Uh, whatever other perceptions we have of them. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of, it's an endless fight, it seems like. Um, yeah, oh, for sure. Know. And it, there's really no right answer, it's, you know, because as soon as you weigh in one way, someone's going to tell you something else, so. <laughs> well, you know, you got you, you got to live your life and kind of kind of go. Well, this is this is how I like it. This is how I see it, and that's kind of what you do. Forget everyone. Well, else. You, kill you them and everybody, and uh, don't do harm to anyone else, and they'll and let people live the way they want to live. As long as they're not harming anyone else, and you know, I don't see uh, where the issue is yeah. because we're only here for a short time. It's, it's not a, we don't get a dress rehearsal and come back and do it right the next time. We get one shot at this, so why don't we just move on? I, I agree, totally, uh, except for with David. Mm. we got to keep him <laughs> yeah, <on>. That's <laughs> true. It gets a little well, I'm learning this story. about Dave. So. <laughs> yeah, yes. he's, he's one to be careful. Um, <laughs> so I wonder, because when you do this, and, you, and so you've done that that book, for instance, and every other one, um, what? how does it affect you? Like, what do you get out of a book? So when you've completed a book like that where you you know there's a there's a – kind of a a meaning to it and something that is be, kind of more below the entertainment value in the story. Um, and you've shared that and you put that in a book and you look back at it. Um, how do you think it changes you? I don't know if it changes me. Uh, what I would like is I hope that the readers that enjoy my stories actually will get something out of It's not really a message that I'm trying to say. It's just a, I'm just trying to portray my characters as you see them in everyday life here on Earth. And, uh, you know, I think uh, if I can get the reader to empathize with them, uh, not feel sorry, that's the wrong way. And it's funny, when I do these things, these interviews as an author, I should know all these words, but when I try to actually articulate them um, uh, live here, it doesn't quite come out as well <laughs> as it should. I can write it better and I can say it. But uh, I, I just hope that the reader will take something away from me and go, well, you know what? I, I agree with that, and and, and they they and that it, it leaves an impression in them so that they'll think about it a bit longer and think, you know, I really enjoyed that story. 
because of the way the characters interacted, because of the way they dealt with certain situations. And, and I wish the world would be like that uh, in real life. Oh, absolutely. Well, you've you've written a lot, and I'm, I'm just wondering if you've noticed any um, motifs or reoccurring themes um, uh, within your work. Uh, other than uh, Monty Python eggs that I put, try to put out through them, <laughs> my uh, my son is uh, one of my beta readers, and uh, I like to throw them in there just for him to find. And uh, you know, it's it's just a flesh wound it would be a common one that you would you know. But uh, <laughs> I just throw them in there once in a while. And uh, but as far as recurrent themes. I don't think so. I, I think each of my stories develops its own theme. And again, I don't sit down. And I know some writers do. They try to put a certain theme in there, whether do racism this time or do alcoholism, or whatever, and and then they try and uh, expand upon that. I don't. I think these things happen in everyday life all the time. So sometimes uh, you know, a great mixture of these things will come into my stories. Sometimes a lot, sometimes a little. It all depends on what's happening with the adventure and the quest that the my creature, my characters and creatures are on. So I, I never consciously try to put them in there, but uh, they do seep in there because I try to make the characters realistic, like that we can all relate to. So they're going to have uh, their foibles as well. You know, they're going to be do some great things and they're going to do some things that they're not quite proud of. So, you know, when you talk about things seeping in, like a lot of your, your life and relationship experiences through, through your, your life. Um, so when you're writing, um, do things in the outside world affect you? Like, you know, the last couple of years has been crazy, all the weird stuff and, you know, the politics and the COVID and, you know, the truckers <laughs> and everything going on. It creates a certain atmosphere, no matter what, what side you'd be on. There's a certain atmosphere and there's this real, uh, you know, kind of an ugliness sort of and a real tension and, and upset going on. Does that stressor um, factor into your book? Again, I don't think I consciously have it uh, come into my books, but I, as a as a you know, regular person, I don't, I don't think I can avoid that happening. So it's funny you say that. I had a research trip, plans to the British Isles on May 4th, 2020, and I was supposed to research superstition witchcraft of the 15th and 16th century. And, of course, that got uh, canceled because of COVID. And uh, so the series that I was going to write, uh, changed. So I, I queried my fans as to which minor character from my books that they've read would like to hear a story about. And COVID had started to settle in and uh, we didn't know where we were going. And uh, it seemed like most of them wanted to hear about this uh, young uh, cheeky archer named Sidira, who uh, I mentioned in halfway through Into the Ma or Wizard of the North that she has a dark history, but I never tell them what it is. And they wanted to know what her dark history was. Oh, okay, I'll write that story. And I could see that. Uh, the things that we were going through with COVID and the uncertainty of whether we'd ever come out of it again, you know, how serious was it? Uh, it all started uh, coming into the story as far as the, the theme. Uh, serious story is a very dark one at the beginning. And I tried to shine a bit of light in there as well. So like there was a light at the end of the tunnel type of thing. So Sidir was going through this very dark time, which COVID really was for many people. But, you know, I tried to put that little light at the end of the tunnel so that uh, not everything was all doom and gloom that, you know, if we persevere and fought through it, that, you know, perhaps maybe we might be able to get to that light again. So it, it certainly did uh, prevail in uh, the series I wrote uh, during 2020, for sure. Do, do you have like an occult sort of um, paranormal sort of, um, I don't know, a belief or does it, is, has it entered your life? 
to a point where you'd like to write about it or include it in your book? Not at all. <laughs> Not at all. No. <laughs> and, and I don't mean to, uh, it, it's funny being, being a fantasy writer. Uh, I love all my fans. I get some fans that come in here and that into my booth or wherever I'm selling books and signing books. And you know, they tell me they're dragons and they tell me all these other things. And, you know, that's great. If that's what you believe and you're happy doing that, then that's fine. But, uh, I, uh, personally, I, I don't, you know, I don't, I personally, I don't believe in ghosts. I don't believe in dragons and fairies and all this other stuff, but I, I believe in the escapism and, uh, and the vehicle that it gives us to escape the everyday troubles and trials and tribulations that you might have in your everyday life. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't have to be COVID. You know, we all have financial issues. We all have, uh, you know, I don't just say we all, but we have, you know, people have financials, they have marital issues, they have relationship issues, whatever your issue is, uh, I think uh, reading a book is a nice way to escape it or dig deeper in it, depending on the theme that you're reading. But uh, as far as fantasy goes, I think it's a nice way to just kind of disconnect with the troubles of the world at the time. And, you know, even if it's only for half an hour that you're engrossed in the pages, uh, I think it's a, a nice vehicle for the reader to, uh, you know, just kind of take a time out. So, so you don't dress up like a dragon or anything? I, I do. I, I'm not a dragon. I'm not big enough. I'm not a big guy. So I, I dress up. I have a nice costume that I wear when I go to a lot of uh, like Comic-Cons and stuff like that. And, and people absolutely love it. I'm a very reserved person. So for me to do that, it's really stepping out of my comfort zone. But it's something that you do as you as you try to help us as an independent <laughs> author. You need something to get people into your booth. Because when people walk by Richard H. Stevens' booth, they they'll look at the books and go, I don't know who that is, and they just keep going. You know, if it says Stephen King or J.K. Rowling on there, they'd be in there like shot. So I need something else to draw people mm. in. So I will wear a knight's costume, and I'm I'm okay with it now. It's uh, something you do. I was gonna say, just put Stephen King on yeah. there <laughs> and a locking yeah, door held the button. Yeah. yeah, lock them in and dress up like Stephen. There King, you go. You know, you know, you get them in there, and then they can't get out. They don't buy a book. You have like this big push a button and they go through the floor. Yeah, they'd be, I think they'd be a little disappointed though if they came in and realized it. <laughs> yeah, well, you never know. You never know. So, who are your um, inspirations? And it doesn't just have to be writers. Do you have some sort of um, influences or things that kind of? We at Wondery, creators of Dr. Death, Scamfluencers, and Over My Dead Body, go deeper into complex true crime stories to give you an inside look at the facts. And now we're launching the ultimate true crime fan destination, Exhibit C. It's truly criminal. Wondery's Exhibit C gives you the detective's lens of all of the evidence, taking you step-by-step step through the twists and turns of each true crime case. Join the Exhibit C online community to access exclusive show merchandise, member-only content, and to hear directly from top criminal and social justice experts, witnesses, and investigators as they take us beyond the evidence and into the case file. Join now by following Wondery Exhibit C on Facebook or find us on the web at WonderyExhibitC.com and listen to true crime podcasts on Wondery and Amazon Music. Exhibit C. It's truly criminal. Get you going. Yeah, I would say a few of my family members. My my wife, uh, she's set up her own uh, online business, and uh, she's 
fairly successful at it. She's actually successful enough to allow me to leave my job with the police service. I'm not, like I say, I'm not a big strapping guy, nor am I an alpha male. So the police service probably wasn't the best choice of a career for me. Uh, I had a very hard time dealing with the, the individuals that we had to deal with. So I was stressed to the point that we figured my life might end prematurely. And uh, so she's allowed me to actually step away from the policing uh, life and just right full time. So she's a big inspiration there. Uh, my children are too, just uh, because we didn't have a lot growing up and uh, they, the way they persevered and uh, did very well in the University of Maine. So they did on their own, you know, as much as we wanted to help them, we couldn't at the time. And so they're an inspiration that way too. And uh, one of my books is uh, the two characters pretty well draw upon uh, my one son and my one daughter, the two years apart in uh, the two characters I can see them, my son and daughter, in those two characters when I wrote that series and how they interplay with each other. Uh, as far as authors go, Terry Brooks is the one who, uh, like I said earlier, that he's the one who inspired my love of reading and writing fantasy. And Stephen R. Donaldson, uh, his world building was, is absolutely incredible. So he's the one who also made me fall in love with the, the genre. Well, what about um, someone that is world building it makes it spectacular what what special thing is there just the the ease at which he can make you feel transported into a place that's not uh earth and that's you know fantasy is the, the books are so big and a lot of that has to do with the world building the magic systems and everything else like that that's uh so if i say you know we're going to paris france that's all i have to say everyone knows what paris france is i don't have to you know elaborate on that. As a fantasy writer, if I say we're going to Grisham, you don't have a clue where that is. So I got to tell you where it is. And you know, <laughs> I got to explain what it looks like and the geographic uh, areas around it. And for some authors, you know, sometimes you, you have pages and pages and pages of this stuff and you go, oh my God, like move on with the story. But uh, for Stephen R. Donaldson and the, the more prolific, good fantasy authors, they can do it in very few words and uh, transport you on top of this high mountain overlooking this very steep defile with a river running down at the bottom and there's something going down there and you, know, you start piquing your curiosity as a reader. And they can do it in so few words that you're, you don't even realize that someone's actually mm -hmm. just narrating what you're seeing. You're actually seeing it and uh, you're living the story. So I, I think that's what I really enjoyed with Stephen R. Donaldson. He does become very long-winded as the series progresses. Uh, and I find a lot of authors do that, but uh, I really enjoyed his stuff. Well, I'm curious, too, um, you know, you mentioned that you were on the police force and such, and, you know, um, you know I, I find it interesting. Um, is it your, your love of, of, of fantasy itself that um, made you go toward uh, being a fantasy writer since you have, uh, you know, police experience that can be put in, in, in a thriller book, or is it just that you don't like... Um, <laughs> you didn't like your, your experiences uh, on the police. No, that's exactly right. The end there, uh, a lot of people ask me, and I wish I, looking back, I wish I had it written down a lot of things that I've seen. And you know, it's, mm -hmm. it's, truth is a lot stranger than fiction. I can guarantee you that. And unless you've walked a mile in uh, those shoes, you would not mm -hmm. believe what the depravity of some, uh, some people are, are capable of. It's just mind-blowing and then when you realize that how many people are actually capable of that like i would never bring most of these experiences home to my family i would never tell them 
what I saw, or it was just like, it was unbelievable. And uh, so I write fantasy, I think maybe as an escape, uh, but I, I wrote fantasy long before I joined the police service, but, uh, but even when I was in the police service, uh, I could, I couldn't write because I was too stressed at that point. But uh, the only time I could do write was uh, we had a hot, we had an hour unpaid lunch and I would just uh, jump into the, the lunchroom and throw my headphones on and eat and uh, escape into my books. And so that's the only writing I did for 12 years was uh, during my hour lunches. But uh, yeah, so yeah, it, it's, it's neat. I, I should have probably wrote down some of the things I saw, but uh, what do I want to write about them? I don't think you'd believe me. You would think that I'm so far-fetched when I was writing that uh, there's no way any of this stuff could happen. So, yeah. I'm sure. Well, I don't know. These days, after the last few years, I think they'd believe almost anything. <laughs> <laughs> I can say that almost every week. I go, what? How can that be? That's great. Yeah, you'd be surprised. I, I was just, it's, I, you just can't dwell on it because it's just, uh, it, it, you'll lose faith in the human, human race. Really, really, yeah. You know, I, I see that because I think that's kind of another issue with the internet and that people people are seeing others uh, much easier. We're seeing a lot more of uh, you know the the weird and the, yeah, the, the wing nuts sure. doing stuff. Yeah, and you're kind of like I can't believe it, right? And you don't realize. And I think it's always been there. It's just much. We've got a, a lot bigger access to it, right? Yeah, now. and you know what? And it's unfortunate, but I think a lot of it is isn't as much as I enjoy wine and rum and coke. A lot of it's uh, drug and alcohol. Uh, I would say pretty well 99% of it or more is driven by one or the other. And uh, we had a every day, like I worked in the court system, so uh, we had one day devoted just to drugs. So any you know, drug offenses and you know, people overnight doing whatever crimes they came in as well. But it was all devoted to drugs. And someone came up to me one day and said, we should have an alcohol day. And I looked at him, I said, sir? The other four days are devoted to alcohol. Like it's, uh, <laughs> it, it, it's true. Like no normal sane person would do what these people do. So, as much as you can't excuse what they've done, there's a reason that they do it. And you, at, when you work that profession, it, it's a hard line because you deal with these people all the time. There's no respect a lot of you know the, the stuff that you deal with, but you have to try and see the beyond that and see the human elements and. You know, at one point, you would hope that they weren't like that. Something in life got them to that point. And then it's just up to you with, can you make a difference? Can you maybe guide them back to living a, a regular, normal, productive life? Or are they a lost cause? There were a lot of lost causes I dealt with. I just shook my head and thinking, why did we bother with some of these people? But there were other people that we dealt with. You could see that there was something behind those eyes. There was, you know, there was a spark of hope in there somewhere. And that's where, as a system, sometimes we fail. We just let them keep going. Yeah, it's unfortunate. Mm -hmm. Oh, for sure. There's no um, Yeah. You know, and it, when you say that, running, you know, on your lunch break and stuff, you'd, you'd headphone and write and stuff. So that leads me to the question of how do you plan your day um, in the sense of um, writing? Um, it sounds to me like the your emotion or your mood is very important because let's say, you know, the uh, wife is working and you've got a certain amount of time, so, you know, four or five hours here to write. Can you just kind of go, oh, I'll sit down and write? Or it, 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 does you, do you have to be in that mood? I, but I guess I have to be in the mood to write for sure. I, I, I don't believe in writer's block. That's brought up in a lot of uh, writer's circles. I got writer's block and, I, I think a story will write itself and it's ready to write itself. And I think what we do as authors is we stress over the fact that we're not writing today. 
and I do as well. And we think that we got writer's block. No, you don't have writer's block. You just, you know, the story's not ready to write itself. When your mind is developed enough with that, with the story, it will all of a sudden come out. At least that's my experience. As far as the writing life, my wife and I, we work from home and uh, we work in the same office and it actually works out quite well. She leaves me alone. I leave her alone. Uh, I wake up in the morning. I deal with social media, Facebook mostly, but, you know, try and uh, get in touch with my fans, uh, you know, do arrange things like this with the interview with you guys. And uh, at some point I will edit what I wrote yesterday. So if I write 2,500 words today, I will edit that tomorrow morning. And that puts me in the frame of mind to start writing again at somewhere around lunchtime. Just after lunch, I will sit down and I'll write for two to three hours. I might get 500 words out. I might get 3,000 words out. And by supper time, I just shut it down. And I generally don't write after supper. So I've got it. Even though I write full time, I probably only really write two hours, two and a half hours. Don't let your wife hear that. Oh, no, she knows. No, she knows. She's a big supporter. She, she understands the process. Yeah. <laughs> there's so much other things especially as an independent author there's so many things that are going on i'm wearing so many hats and she's trying to take over some of that so that i can you know uh, focus on writing as opposed to trying to uh, deal with social media or market myself or advertise all that stuff that i don't want to do yeah yeah it's hard if you're if to do all of that the marketing and the there's so many parts to to writing books and and series of books and getting it out there that, you know, um, it's it's a lot to to learn. Oh, for sure, and I'm admittedly not good at any of those. So, uh, <laughs> there's I always I, I tell people I think of myself as a race car driver. So I write the book, but without my team behind me, my pit crew, my book goes nowhere. So, you know, even though I'm the A.J. Foyt, so I get all the glamour and the glory because uh, I'm the author. Uh, my car would never cross that finish line if I didn't have my pit crew behind me. So I always try to give credit to them whenever, whenever I can because uh, they're the ones that uh, actually make my car go. Well, you know, you mentioned, um, you know, only writing for like two or three hours. And, you know, I, I've noticed myself that when it comes to fiction, uh, not so much nonfiction, but fiction, you know, you're, you're so kind of uh, locked into that world so focused that, and I don't know if you feel the same way, but I, I feel that, you know, it, it, to me it feels like two to three hours is almost like, you know, writing for six or seven hours. It, it, doing six or seven hours worth of work is kind of how I feel after, I'm, after I've done like three hours of writing. Yeah, no, I actually, my time flies. When I finally get sink my teeth into what I'm doing uh, for the day, all of a sudden I'll look back on the clock and go, wow, where'd the time go? It, it just takes me a while to ease into it. And once I'm in there, I need to be left in there. If And the problem with working at home and other things going on is that uh, you have things that you know pull you out of what you're doing. And, and, and COVID's been such a distraction that I, like, you would think that COVID would, because we're just stuck at home now because of COVID, we're not going anywhere. I have so much more time to write. And it's not true because there's always these little things pulling at you to just pull you out of the moment. So once I get into the moment and once I get into the writing, time flies really quickly. I get a lot of words done. But as soon as something pulls me out, it takes me a while just to ease back in there and get my, my brain wrapped around what I'm doing again. So, but we're all different yeah. as writers, for sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Dave's different. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Dave, I didn't mean to bring that up. Oh, that's okay. That's true, though. 
um so you, you said you like social media so how do people find you what what social media are you on do you have a website um do you have any sort of blogs or anything like that what's what's the contact uh place for you yeah the, the best way you can follow me uh you can follow me my i'm on facebook and i have an author page my regular page uh i just accept any friends you know <laughs> i shouldn't say maybe oh. Pfizer in there. but just look for richard a stevens uh I think it's Richard, Richard Hugh Stevens, 39. I don't know where the 39 came from, but, uh, and he was H Stevens, S E P H E N S. He was H U G H, but Richard Hugh Stevens, 39. And you'll see a green dragon eye icon. I do most of my uh, social media through my regular Facebook page. I do some of my more official stuff through my Facebook author page. And that's Richard Hugh Stevens. Again, uh, my website, you can reach me through there is at www.richardhstevens.com. And again, Stevens is spelled with a PH. Uh, I normally just do Facebook myself. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Twitter. I don't understand any of those platforms. That's where my wife steps in. She's a genius with all that stuff. So I've got no use for Twitter. I don't understand it. It makes no sense to me. I've got no Instagram. I'm certainly not a TikToker. Oh, oh, come on. No, 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 no. <laughs> no, that's beyond me. I'm, uh, I think I'm too old for that. Uh, I'm too set my ways to do a TikTok. But, uh, so <laughs> Facebook is my, is my normal social media platform for sure. And, uh, as far as, uh, blogs and stuff, I actually host, uh, a show called Lurking for Legends every Tuesday night. And it's a play on, uh, my one series called uh, Legends of Lurkers. So now this one's Lurking for Legends, and that's uh, my way to give back to the uh, the writing community for all the help. They've been so instrumental in helping me get my career up and running and off the ground because there's so much to learn as an independent author that it's, uh, it's overwhelming. You just don't know where to start, so you don't start. But when you uh, surround yourself with a bunch of people who are willing to help you, uh, you know it's, it's not a competition being an author. It's uh, all about supporting each other. And uh, so Lurking for Legends airs every Tuesday on my Facebook page, my Facebook author page from 8 till 9. And I talk to writers from and other uh, people from different walks of the publishing industry. So narrators, cover artists, uh, some kind of marketers. Uh, we have them on there every week. So. Hmm. Interesting. Now we're going to have all that up on our website as well. People can find you then. Well, that'd be they don't great. Have to know it's pH. They, yeah, they get the pH in there for sure, and and the H. <laughs> a lot of people forget the H, and if you search Richard H. Stevens, you'll come up with a thousand of them. So that H really helps yeah. to hone down. Yeah, we've got another Richard Stevens on in two weeks. Well, there you go. Three weeks. pH. Yeah, yeah, and I'm calling him Dick. <laughs> <laughs> Just so I can tell, I had to do everything because I had I was getting you guys mixed up. It's crazy. Okay, you have to be careful. Um, now, one book. If 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 someone wants to um, never have heard of you before, which is really hard for me to believe, but if they didn't know who you were, and they said, "What one book should I get to find out what Richard H. Stevens with the PH sound is like?" Um, which one would you suggest they, they start with? Well, we're really here to talk about the High Cliff Guardians and Keeper of the Jewel, which is the series I'm writing now. But my best-selling book is Rika's Flight, and that's the one. Uh, it's it's about a six-year-old girl at the beginning of the book, and she's sitting on the side of a hill with her grandfather overlooking the ocean. And, you know, she's very innocent, and she's pointing at different things, and she points at the butterfly and says, can I fly as high as a butterfly? And, of course, grandpa's being what they are 
he encourages her to do, you know, she can do anything she wants. And at some point she says, can I fly as high as a dragon? He said, of course you can. And then they go home and uh, grandma finds out. And grandma's not too happy that uh, he, grandpa's filling her head with all this stuff. And the story quickly evolves from there. And uh, so it's all about uh, a young girl who is kind of ostracized for her imagination and uh, wanting to follow her dreams. And she gets bullied. And she quickly grows up in the story. So, you know, by chapter three or four, she's 18 and then 19 and then 21. And then uh, uh, she's trained to hunt dragons because the king does not like that the uh, dragons are higher in the food chain than man is. So he wants to eradicate the dragons from the land. And she believes that that's what they should be doing. But something happens in the story that changes that point of view. And she realizes that what they're doing to the dragons is wrong. And Enrica decides that she wants to champion the cause of the dragons. And it's all about her quest to save the dragons from the king. So it's a three-book series. It's The Legends of the Lurker. And book one is Rika's Flight. And uh, it's, it won a couple of awards a couple of years ago. It's my best-selling book. And my wife, who doesn't even like fantasy, but she's uh, one of my proofreaders, she absolutely fell in love with the story. So if anyone's to get in on the Soul Forge universe, that's probably the book to start with. Well, now we know, you know, we know, we know all about Stephen, Richard yes. Stevens. He's a, he's a lurker. Yeah. <laughs> but you know what? Lurker is the name of the dragon and the dragon is named after the cat. So, yeah. Oh, well, there you go. See, now you know a secret. Yep, yep. The dragon was named um, after the cat and Rika was actually named after my wife and my daughter. So, Rebecca and Caroline. Wow. See, see, we find out all these. Oh, there's uh, so many things they've got in area for sure. You well, you must have. I, you know, you're kind of a, you know, structured. I don't know how to say it. You kind of you sound like an alpha to me, but you're not. You, uh, but you must have a lot of. Um, I don't know. You must be really sensitive to write a lot of these stories. Yeah, I would think I am. I, I think one of my biggest my own faults that I find is. Uh, I have the inability not to tell the truth. So when, especially when I was in the work environments, people would ask me some hard-nosed questions, I would get myself in trouble by telling the truth. And it, it seems like a strange thing to say. But uh, uh, so, yeah, I, I feel I'm, uh, as, as much as I don't wear my heart on my sleeve, per se, I'm kind of reserved. I'm like my father that way. But he was a very emotional man, and you could see it if you once you understood who he was. And, you know, I think I get a lot of that from him. Uh, I empathize with everyone. You know, I can see the good and the bad and everybody uh, working in the police service really uh, brought that out. <laughs> Especially that is it's funny because whenever I was in uniform, I always thought somebody was, everyone I looked at was guilty of something. And as soon as I took the uniform off, you know, I just reverted back to normal where I didn't think that way anymore. So it, it's funny how certain things uh, shape or color your, your views on things. But uh, yeah, I would say I'm uh, deep in, deep inside. I'm uh, very emotional for sure. Yeah, and it's and and the things we do, things like what you said, when you're looking for crime and you're you're an officer, it, it must somewhat jade you towards oh, people. Oh, for sure. And and so when you have years, some years of of doing that and seeing all of these bad things day after day, it must kind of creep into your thoughts in the sense that you're you're always on guard of these bad things happening, and that's sort of maybe where it kind of starts at when you create a story 
Yeah, like I say, I, I started a policing career later on in life, so I've done a lot of writing before then. But uh, it, it's funny that you mentioned that. Uh, I remember the first few months of working in the policing industry, I guess they call it industry, <laughs> worst in the policing <laughs> environment. Uh, yeah, I'm an author and I can't come up with the right word. Working in the environment. And uh, I remember one officer looking at me and I was being too um, emotional, I guess, for what was going on. I was being too sympathetic to the criminal. And of course, uh, it, uh, it bugged the officer I was working with. And he said, uh, don't worry. He says, one of these days you will be broken. He said, and you'll know it when it happens. And I had no idea what he was talking about. Uh, and, and then you deal with these people time and time again, and you try to give them the benefit of the doubt. And then, you know, they, the, they cut your throat, so to speak. Uh, they stab you in the back as soon as you got your back turned. And I'm talking about the criminals now. And, uh, all of a sudden, that one day I was jaded. I, I just, I just knew it. It was almost like someone hit a switch, and all of a sudden, I, I lost my empathy for a lot of these people, and uh, and that was scary because, uh, like I said earlier, that uh, you know, I don't think any of us actually are born mean or evil. You know, things in the environment have beaten us down or changed us or done something uh, negative towards uh, these people that to get them to be where they are. A bad choice. Uh, there's so many people I saw in the policing industry that. You know, grade A student and everything else went to a party one night and got hooked on something just because, you know, they had a couple of drinks or something and someone pushed something on them. And next thing you know, they're stealing from the family and then they're stealing from society. Then they're on the streets and you've got this beautiful girl who was 16 years old, had her whole life ahead of her. Now she's working the streets in Toronto and, uh, you know, she'll probably die before she's 30. And to see that because we do lineups and we do photos and fingerprints and everything else of these people and just normal people and you know what a kid looks like a kid 10 years later they look like they're 80 years old because of what drugs have done to their skin and everything their teeth and all it's just but as an officer all of a sudden you just get jaded to these people and that because you know they're going to try and stab you in the back and it's it's unfortunate because they all aren't like that but you as an officer you have to see them all like that because uh, there's, I don't want to get into the political part of the whole thing about the shootings and stuff like that, but an officer's got to make a decision so fast that he can't stand back there and let you shoot him first. It, it just, so at some point, he's got to make the split-second decision, and we can all, in social media and uh, in society, judge him after the fact. But you know, really, how would you honestly react in some of these situations? You couldn't even say because you don't do it, but... Yeah, no, it's it's. I'm, it's not, def I'm yeah, not defending yeah. some of the officers that uh, have done some things that they shouldn't have. By all means, I'm not doing. I'm not saying that everyone is good, but it's just so volatile. And you deal with these people every day, and you think, oh, that, that officer, why is he so cranky? He just gave me a ticket, and he's been mean to me. But you don't, you know, you did probably didn't deserve the attitude the officer gave you. But the the stuff that he went through coming up to that point mm -hmm. in that day, and he's just trying to get through the day. And you know, we all want to go home. I, I don't go to work hoping that someone's going to punch me in the face but that's what these people face every day and uh, does does that uh, does that justify them being you know kind of short with you when they're giving you a traffic ticket well probably not because you're human too and you've done nothing wrong other than just sped but i think we all need to stay to step back and just appreciate what everyone else goes through in life and not just an officer but anyone like we all face our own little things so yeah, yeah, and and we're all human, exactly. so we all do things, you know, and that. But so when you become jaded, I guess that's probably when you started going out and being a serial killer. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's hope that doesn't happen. I haven't done that yet, so at least I won't admit to it. 
Oh, come on. Let's, <laughs> let's get the real scoop here. Oh, no. Well, you're an interesting guy. I can't believe it. Um, and now, the um, how do you like um, reviewers and, and ratings and the whole Internet world now and everyone having access to you, so to speak, you know, to say what they like or don't like? Do you sort of – are you okay with that or do you not like it? Or where, where do you stand? Yeah. I'm starting to get a thick skin. Maybe the placing industry helped me do that as well. But I got a one-star review, and it was the very first review on Swordforge. And it was the only <laughs> review there. And this person had a bone to pick with anyone who wasn't Brandon Sanderson. For some reason, it was, I don't, he, if you weren't Brandon Sanderson, you get a one-star review. And then he said, you know, go read Brandon Sanderson. So, But that that crushed me because this is, my, this is the very first book that I – well, third book I published, but it was the very real book, first book. This is one that I had in my head for 35 years, and I got that review, and I was just devastated. I'm thinking that, you know, if Alan or David uh, go on Amazon, they don't know who I am, but they all have an interesting cover, and they click on it to see one one-star review, you're not going to waste your money on that book. Right? Why would you? So you move on. And uh, so I reached out to the author community, and they were amazing, and all of a sudden a whole bunch of people put in some, you know, nicer reviews and stuff just to get the rating back up. But yeah. 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 It's hard. It is. It is. Well, you're an interesting fellow. It's been a good interview and we thank you for, for taking the time, you know, and remember everybody, you can go around Toronto there. You might see old Richard out there lurking. Yeah. That's right. It might be lurking for, yeah. I, I hope to yeah. get that. There's big things there called Ad Astra and uh, the Fan Expo and stuff like that. They're great big events. We don't do events as well as they do in the States, but uh, they're the big ones in Toronto, so I'm hoping to get there this year. Well, that'll be good. Yeah, I'm sure you'll do fine, dressed up like a dragon. And, Tonight, yeah. And... <laughs> <laughs> well, Richard, it's been a pleasure. And um, so now uh, the book, of course, we were, talk we were focusing on that we didn't focus on a lot, but um, is Keeper of the Jewel, and it's uh, book one. And... Um, our, our guest has been the author, Richard H. Stevens. Thank you for being here. No, thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure talking to you both. Thanks, Richard. Tired of wasting time trying to decide what to watch on your streaming service? Go to our website and look for the Martino Movie Reviews. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.